here to be with us. Um, I love the people God puts in my life. Me too. He's a good man. And uh, his wife, Susie, joins us every Tuesday for our girls' group. And uh, she just happened to drop a little tidbit about Mike last Tuesday in Bible study. She said, you should hear Mike Jones. Those verses in James 1 are just coming alive to him. And I said, hold it right there, Susie. Stop right there. Those verses are uh, a fundamental principle of life when you get those verses in, in, in. When you get James 1 straight in your life and you begin to know how to count it all joy, you've won the battle. So here is Mike Jones and... I wish I knew a lot of things to tell them about you. You tell them. Okay. Thanks, darling. Love you. Um, yeah, really, really nice to be here. Um, I am not nearly as eloquent a speaker as Linda and John and those who have spoken here, and I've been so privileged to enjoy over the years, but... Um, I do, I have learned that that when I speak, if I tell stories, that those stories seem to have more interest than if I tell you what I think you ought to know. So uh, having planned to come and speak on James 1 and then have Linda stand up here and tell us that this is about being yourself, I hope that they're one and the same, and I hope they'll come together, and I hope that they'll fit into the theme of the weekend. Uh, it's the first I've heard of that. Um, I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I'm really, really excited about that because that is where, in the midst of the misery of my alcoholism and my disease, that I learned what James 1 was all about. I started praying to understand what that was about 10 years ago, and I had no clue what I was getting ready to dive into to discover that, but it's been all good. Um, let me just say a little prayer that I have grown to love over the past year and uh, get us started. It's called the Fetified Prayer. It's one for alcoholics, and it kind of helps me uh, stay open to and willing to what the Spirit has to say. Lord, today help me set aside everything I think I know about you, everything I think I know about myself. Everything I think I know about others. And everything I think I know about my own recovery. For a new experience in myself. A new experience in my fellows. A new experience in my Lord. Amen. James 1, consider it pure joy, my friends, whenever you encounter trials or tribulations of any kind, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. I have some friends that I got to meet uh, several years ago, probably 15, 20 years ago, when Susie and I had young seven- and nine-year-old kids, and we dragged them into the front doors of a Methodist church because that's where I was raised, and we figured these kids needed to know something, and so we'd get them there to church. Little did we know that God was using them to get us to a place where we might have that curiosity and that desire and that hunger to know, who the hell am I? There you go. There it is. Um, and so we wandered in, and we met all these folks, and they had these little Sunday school classes called things like the serendipity class. And I thought, wieners, serendipity class. I don't want to be in that class. That doesn't sound very cool. <laughs> and then we went over to another one, and it was called uh, 
love and peace or something like that. And I thought, double wieners. I don't want to... I don't want to be in that class. I said, I think I want to be in a class called something like Cross and Nails. That sounds really good to me, Cross and Nails. I didn't have a clue what I was talking about then. But it sounded really manly, and it sounded like something I could get into and understand. So we get in this class, and it's, it's the serendipity class. And, and we meet some folks called the Hogs, uh, Mark and Marcia, wonderful people, and Larry and Kathy Steph. And I'm like, you know, they invite us over to dinner First month, second month, something like that. Really like these people. They're awesome people. Uh, one of them is getting ready to leave. He was the youth minister at this church. To leave this church and move downtown in Louisville to, to Portland. He's leaving his five-acre house and his swimming pool and, and taking his little kids that were my kids' age. And he's going to move to Portland because that's where he's been called to do ministry. And he's going to live amongst the folks that he does ministry with. These are the same folks that take the tires off of his car every night and his wheels and steal the radio out of his car and he's going to move his little seven and nine year old kids there and I'm like man you know can't you just go down there and share this cross and nail story with these people and then come back home to Crestwood and live on your five acre farm with your pool where people don't steal your tires every night and he said oh no Mike no 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 see it is in the journey it's in the living it's in the existence is in the trust in God that I really discover who I am in Christ. And I thought, all right, that sounds pretty good, but I'm not so sure I understand that. So where do you get that? Where is that in Scripture, Larry? Well, Mark Hogg jumps in about that same time, and, you know, he's got this ministry where he hauls people all over the world to Kenya and to Costa Rica and the Dominican, and they put in water systems. And he goes down there for like 12 and 15 days, lives in the heat and sweat, and on, lives, sleeps on a piece of plywood. And, and I'm thinking, you know, can't you send them some money? I mean, what, what do you have to, and he says, this is what Larry's trying to tell you. It's this verse called, consider it pure joy, my friends, whenever you encounter trials and tribulations of any kind. I'm like, I don't think that my God wants me to experience any sleeping on any pieces of plywood <laughs> and sweating. I'm a fat kid already. I do enough of that. And I really, really, really like, you know, the lifestyle that I've been given. And I think this is the way God intended for me to live. You all go live your lifestyles, but I'm staying with my swimming pool on my 40 acres right here in Crestwood, Kentucky, raising my kids in the private schools, doing all the right things, earning the money, having three cars, having 18 animals in the backyard. And, you know, I'm going to consider that pure joy, and it's going to be great. So I did for a number of years. Um, to me, who I am uh, was defined by what I did. And so for many, many years, I've spent a lot of time in the landscape contracting business getting beat to hell by Wade Warren on just about every job I ever tried to do because he was so much better than I was. But at any rate, somehow, some way, I managed to eke out a pretty good living and made pretty significant dollars, so much so that... Uh, 
At one point, I was able to move into, I know I'll try to slow down, I move around a lot. At one point, I move into a $2 million house. I got Porsches and Cadillac Escalades, and man, I have defined myself. I have got it figured out. I am really good. But you know, there was something missing. There was something missing. I run into Larry and Mark again. Uh, about the time we move into this house, and they're living down there in Portland, and he's living over in Crescent Hill in a, about a 600-square-foot apartment. And they, they ain't got nothing, man. They ain't got nothing. I got a 10,000-square-foot house. And so they come over, and, you know, I'm thinking, gosh, I've been drinking like a fish the last few years, and I've got to be good because these are my old church buddies. And so I had all the alcohol, and here they come, and they come in with these big smiles on their face. I'm like, it's that daggone joy thing again. I'm going to have to listen to this all night. That's all I could do to get them out of that house so I could get my vodka out. And I'm telling you... That was joy for me that night, getting them out of that house. That was the best thing that happened that night to me. So I decided, though, you know, having had a little time to pray about this, that maybe there's something to uh, this, you know, making a martyr of yourself. That's it. I'd seen that on a poster. I'll be a martyr like them. I'm going to live in this nice house, but I'm going to be a martyr and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something where the world will look at me and not love me because of what I've done, but because of my spirituality. So I sold my landscape business, and I went to work as a volunteer. Pretty good, huh? As a volunteer at a local Catholic boys' school. Uh, it's called Trinity High School. I still have the privilege of being the team chaplain. And the kids know that they're allowed to slap me in the face if I ever act like a coach because I don't know anything about soccer. But um, I get to wear the shirt, and everybody thinks I do, and I get to go on the field, and it's a lot of fun. Again, that's, you know, kind of who I am. Um, but at any rate, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work for six years at Trinity, and I'm going to share the gospel with these kids, and then everybody's going to really like me. I'll have the 10,000-square-foot house, the Boxster, the Cadillac Escalade, and everyone's respect, and then I'll know what joy is. How exciting is it? Bert came. Bert came over, and I brought him. I brought my Jewish friend, and he came into the Catholic school, and, and we talked about Christ, and it was really good. It was awesome. The kids still talk about you. There's some kids I run into. Say, what about that Jewish guy that came that's converted and now he loves Jesus? That's confusing, but, but, but they remember you, Bert. It was really good. Bert came, and, and he shared his, his message as only he can. Um. About a year ago, my drinking really, really, really got strong. The, the late 05, early 06, I had decided while I was at Trinity that I really wanted to keep that big house, so I went into the land development business. At that point in time, I had 13 uh, land development projects in various stages of construction or approval or land bought or something, and most of them were in Oldham County, and then the gas crunch hit. And so even though we had in our first development 40, 58 of our 58 lots committed and contracted, and I can go on and on and on and on. Bottom line is 
the world crashed, okay? Financially, the world crashed. The good news is uh, God sold my house, and so that was gone, and I didn't have to fool with that, and we moved into a neat little house, and I told everybody, I think I've considered, I figured out what this considered pure joy. I got me a trial and a tribulation. I'm down to a 3,500-square-foot ranch. It's, it's, it's really tough, but we like it here a lot. Now I understand consider it pure joy. Uh, started doing a lot of drinking. We had planned because we were really big, important people to spend the winter in Naples. So uh, we had already uh, paid for part of our rental for three and a half months in a in a really. I'll tell you about it. It's a great community. It's called Pelican Bay. Only very important people get to go there. Um, we showed up, and, and, and we showed up December 15th. We had three and a m- half months to stay. We were really excited about it, Susie and I both. And, and we had, you know, f- some rough things going on in the development world, but we'd sold the big house, gotten out from under that, and, you know, I'm just kind of walking through clueless and, and doing what I do. And we get down there, we fly in, and the guy needs the check for the other two and a half months, and that's another $20,000 or something. So I call back to the office and I say, you'll need to transfer some funds because I'm a little short in my account. Why don't you move 50000 over to my account? And they laughed. And I said, no. Seriously, I need to write this check to this man. He's standing here, and I need to know that you've covered. Well, Mike, we can't write any out of that account because that account's empty. Well, well, how can that be? Well, then write it out of this other account. Well, there is no money in that other account. Well, write it out of that other account. And, and of course, you know the rest of the story. All the accounts are empty. Um, I didn't know that. The day before I left, we were supposed to close on 409 land for 496 units of housing. So, you know, nobody told me how difficult and that we'd gotten right to the wire financially and that if that deal didn't happen, which it didn't happen two days before it was supposed to, if that didn't happen, that there was no money. So here I am in Florida with this guy needs his check. And so we get out the credit card and we got a $22,000 credit limit. So 18000 we can write that check. Now, how are we going to get by the rest of the time? Well, here's how Mike got by the rest of the time. Mike did a lot of drinking. Mike got up in the morning and started drinking at about 8 or 8.30 and then passed out around 11.30 or 12. We called that taking a nap in Pelican Bay. And, and slept for a couple hours, got up, went to the beach, loaded up my vodka in the cooler, spent a couple, three hours lounging on the beach. <laughs> That's passing out here in J-Town, Kentucky. Um, and then would go home, and it was cocktail hour at 6 o'clock, and then uh, pass out 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, wake up at about 2, 2.30 in the morning, and, and drink again. And most of this by myself, sitting in the dummy chair in a, in a very dark condominium, Uh, in a place where I knew no one, uh, just drinking, you know, all day long and by myself. I'm married to a saint. Uh, She had enough sense to let it be and to trust that God was big enough to take care of that which she couldn't. And the way, but really she could. The way she could was she let the God in her just be real still. And so she was still. Um... About the middle or end of February, um, hands were shaking so bad I couldn't get the toothpaste on the toothbrush. Couldn't get the food on the fork to end up in the mouth. And um, 
I knew that waking up at 2.30 in the morning by yourself, sitting in the chair, drinking about a half a gallon of vodka by yourself was probably not real good. My stomach was a wreck, and, and I was a nervous wreck in my face. I've got this great big dome, right? It's not quite as big as Wade's, but it's getting there. But when I was drinking, this dome was about two and a half times as big. It was just all puffed out, and it was looking strange. So um, Susie, in her inevitable way, said, Mike, you know, you're going home this weekend to check on some things. Maybe you just run in the doctors and see if you can get an appointment, find out what all that shaking's about. So I go in and uh, do the blood work and get the call, and the bottom line is you're going to die in less than a year if you don't quit drinking, and I know I can't quit drinking. I know by this point that I can't quit drinking. We were unable during that three and a half months to unload any of the properties, to do anything. Everybody's calling, trying to collect cash. And my response, the only thing I knew to do was just to keep drinking. Uh, went over that edge. Uh, I didn't want to believe that because I'm an alcoholic and we don't want to believe anything that would take away our joy. So... Um, I came back home and went to another doctor, one that I had known some friends who had been to who was also a liver specialist. You need to know that I lost my brother 11 years ago to alcoholism, cirrhosis of the liver, and Luli and uh, the Warens and the whole crowd were there with us uh, through all of that. But, uh, you know, still the, the disease was so insidious and so incredible that um, I had convinced myself that I can find this person who can tell me that I can probably keep drinking if I just do it this way or I just do it that way. And so that's what I did. I went back and I found this doctor. And unfortunately, this doctor, with her own independent results, came up with, uh, you're going to die in less than a year if you don't quit drinking. And she handed me a prescription, and the prescription said, treatment center. So off I go to this local treatment center. They send me off to a place called Warrior, Alabama. And I heard some of you are from somewhere near that place. Um, I, I'm sure it's very, very nice. I didn't see much except for around the fenced-in, 12-foot-tall concertina wire where the rehab was. Uh, the first seven days that I was there and in detox and sleeping on that piece of plywood like they have in Costa Rica. You know, remember that? Um, with the guy over here had crapped his pants and the guy over here was throwing up, I'm thinking, is this the joy part? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, the good news w is that um, I knew it was buried. It was really buried. But I knew that Christ lived in me. I knew that Christ loved me. But I didn't know if I loved me. And what I began to realize is that what I've been doing all my life is running around trying to figure out who the hell am I. The same question I heard when I was 17 years old on my first little spiritual retreat, retreat when uh, the guy looked me in the face and screamed and said, who the hell are you? And I said, I don't know. So I spent a lot of time knowing that, that, that God loved me and that God lived in here. And I knew that, that, that this was somehow, some way, God's reflection in me. But I'm going to tell you it was pretty miserable. Um, and so I started working the 12 Steps. 
uh, came home after my, doing my 30 days, did my 90 meetings in 90 days here, met a bunch of people that uh, do not belong in the serendipity Sunday school class, uh, <laughs> but they know who the hell they are. And what they taught me about who the hell I am is uh, I am defined this way, simply put. Here's who I am. I am loved, simply put. And when I can simply put it that way and I can focus on that, that I am loved, then I don't have to be the guy that looks like the spiritual leader or the guy that has the cars in the house. But I can just kind of be. Um, and there's such a freedom in that. And I don't think that I could ever have fully understood that as much as I preached it and shared it and talked it and thought it and tried to live it until I had lived, until I had slept on that plywood bed. Thank God for that guy that crapped his pants next to me. Thank God for him. Thank God for um, an opportunity to know the freedom of living a God-reliant life because you have no other choice. I have continued to kind of deal with this, this uh, situation of this financial small little thing. Um, and, and, you know, had the house notices to foreclose on and had the you know, the foreclosure notices on all the paper. Today I had a guy come up. I have a summons for you at the front door at 515. I'm like, well, get in line. I've got a lot of summons, <laughs> you know, which is this one about it's a brand new deal. Um, I have, uh, I, you know, it, it's, it's been an interesting year and a half. But the great news is through the entire thing, I wake up every morning no longer Mike Reliant. Mike doesn't have to prove anything to anybody today. Mike today is entirely reliant on the knowledge that he's loved. It, it, it is so freeing. Uh, what, I, what I know from my friends in AA who have walked me down this journey and who have also experienced the pure joy of the trials and tribulations of this disease is that if I wake up every morning and I, I thank God for that knowledge and I'm aware that I am loved and that God can do for me everything I need done today, maybe different than what I think and thank God that it usually is, that, um, you know, I, I'm going to be all right. More than all right, I'm going to live with more freedom than I've ever had in my life. Last week, uh, no, on September, Tuesday, September the 9th, I went into a meeting, and, and this guy who's a partner on one of the projects, we, we negotiate this deal, and he's going to give me $1,670,000 six days later. And my very first thought was, oh, no, Mike Reliance is coming back. Mike needs that lake house and that boat. And Mike, 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 Mike. Oh, God, don't give me a million six hundred and seventy thousand dollars. I'm not ready for it. On Thursday, September 11th, he took it away. So what the hell? You know, my attorney said, gosh, you were really cool. You played that thing like a cucumber in that meeting. I mean, you look like you didn't give a shit whether you got the money or not. I said, I really didn't want it. 
I really didn't want it. I'm not ready for it today. However, if that's God's plan for me, then, then I'm happy with that. You know, if it's God's plan for me to be an alcoholic, then I'm tickled to death with that. If it's God's plan for me to have uh, two incredible children um, and just love them the way they are and not try to change them every day, then there's a lot of freedom in that. If God's plan for me is for me to not have to have toothpaste falling off my toothbrush today, then I'm tickled to death with that. I just am so comfortable in my skin. I used to hear people say that all the time. Uh, he looks like he's somebody, who, not about me, he looks like he's somebody who's really comfortable in his skin. I thought, what the hell does that mean? Where's the Porsche Boxster in that, you know? But uh, I, I think I understand. It, it's, it's thy will be done, not mine. It's God reliance, not Mike reliance, and it's a wonderful life. Uh, Lily, thanks for letting me share tonight. I, I, I hope that was on target. And uh, I love you. I just love you to death. I love all of you, you girls and, and even the old guys that go with you. Um, and, and it's really, really an honor to stand here. The good news about these things, my experience here is that they usually start with the weakest. And it just gets better and better and better as the weekend goes on. So you all enjoy. And thank you so much for, for listening.